Welcome to the Farmers Weekly podcast. This episode recorded on Friday, the 10th of July, 2020. I'm Farmers Weekly Executive Editor Phil Clark. And I'm Hugh Broom. On the podcast this week, the oilseed rape harvest gets underway, but it's not going to be a big one. Auction marts innovate across the UK to cope with the big autumn breeding sales. And how do you cut your tractor fuel bill by a quarter? The answer, hydrogen. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. But first, a group of horticultural and potato producers have launched a campaign to decide on the future of the statutory levy. They claim DEFRA's consultation on the future of the AHDB last year did not accurately reflect the true feelings of growers, and they're organising a new ballot to help decide the issue. In particular, they feel that the system of levy collection in the horticultural sector, which is based on turnover alone, is not a fair way to collect the cash. Lincolnshire flower grower Simon Redden told us why he thought the initial review was flawed. We're holding this ballot because DEFRA failed to notify levy payers by only advertising online, not using the postage method, which is the way levy payers are invoiced. This is why less than half a percent of levy payers responded. It's undemocratic for DEFRA to make any judgment on the future of AHDB and the statutory levy on this basis. It's as if they bound your hands behind your back, then asked all those in favour to scrap the statutory levy, raise a hand to be counted. He also told us that he thought the numbers were not representative of views in his sector. In DEFRA's review, they only had uh, less than half percent of respondents. They've taken uh, approximately 54% of that half a percent what wish it to remain. But everybody we speak to uh, doesn't share that view. So we need a, a, a proper answer to that question to decide whether the, the statutory instrument should remain. Hayley Campbell-Gibbons is the AHDB Horticultural Chair, and I asked why they don't just give all the levy payers the chance to take part in a ballot. We're open to debate and the growers are within their rights to request a ballot at any point. So, um, you know, that it's no problem that the growers are canvassing support for that. What I would say is that of the 900 responses that DEFRA received, almost 200 of them were from the horticulture sector. And of those responses, a large number of them were on behalf of significant sizable groups of, of growers. So again, I think that coupled with the fact that I'm out and about normally meeting with growers, uh, talking about the issues, you know, we have a very, I would say, uh, good understanding of what growers think and where their concerns are. She went on to tell me that they're reviewing the levy and they've cut the rate for this year. The levy has been a long-standing point of frustration in the industry. And when I took this role on uh, last November, one of the first things I committed to do as chair for the horticulture sector was to uh, conduct a review of the levy. So we set up a working group. And on that group, I've got levy payers paying a few hundred pounds to one levy payer paying over £200,000 a year. And everything's on the table. So as a group, you know, the best people to give us feedback on the right way to collect what is a statutory levy are the growers themselves. And it's 
interesting when you get those growers in a room, there are very different views amongst them even about the right way to do it. But even in DEFRA's request for views, um, the government has picked up on the fact that we need to have a fundamental review of how we collect levy. Uh, but in addition, we did also reduce the levy this year from uh, 0.5% of turnover to 0.45. And that was uh, about a million pound reduction in income to AHDB. And we did that to improve efficiency, to sharpen our focus uh, and to recognise that we were carrying large reserves. Simon Redden said that he developed his business over many years without any help from the levy body. We pay other specialists uh, whenever we, we need them for advice and economists. Um, we go into the marketplace and see what we need to, to, to buy if we can afford to do so for automating processes and cutting down costs. And all of them measures any forward-thinking company at the top of the game, they've always done. Um, they don't need the AHDB to point out what they need to do, you know. They've, they've done it on their own anyway. And, and um, as far as we're concerned, if we need to go to the AHDB to find out how to spend the money, we will be in trouble because uh, they know how to spend it, believe you me. That was Lincolnshire flower grower Simon Redden. Now, if you're a potato or horticultural grower and want to take part in the ballot, you should email your details to ahdbpetition at gmail.com and the independent polling company the campaigners have appointed will send you a ballot paper and questionnaire. So, Phil, clearly some pretty disgruntled uh, some pretty disgruntled levy players there. Yeah, I think that's right, Hugh. Uh, although it's interesting when you look back at the original research that DEFRA did last year, uh, probably the two most disgruntled sectors were the horticulture sector and the dairy sector, uh, but particularly within the horticulture area, they weren't happy with the kind of work that the AHB does on their behalf. Uh, they complain that um, a lot of them do their own research and marketing anyway. Uh, their contributions are disproportionately large. And in particular, they're concerned that they pay according to the turnover of the business, uh, which basically means largest players uh, pay the most even though they may not be the most profitable. So I get why they'd be upset about the disproportionality in terms of the contribution, because if you look at beef farmers, say, compared to horticulturalists, a beef farmer pays, I think it's about £4.20 per animal levy at the abattoir. If someone was finishing a 1,000 cattle a year, that would be 4,200 quid. A 1,000 cattle a year equates to roughly a million quid's worth of turnover. If you're being levied at point. 0.4%, that is 40,000. So they're paying, in effect, 10 times more than their red meat counterparts. I can understand whilst they're cross. And also, many of these horticulture guys are getting no single farm payment because they're running huge, say, glasshouse concerns on a few acres. Uh, and so they're not interested in area payments. So I can see why they're cross. Indeed. And I guess those are some, that's some of the feedback that they'll be hoping to get from the ballot. Uh, with a view to putting those points uh, to AHDB as they're conducting their review. The really ironic thing as well is that all of these horticultural uh, levy pairs get sent an invoice every year. And you'd think if you're going to do a ballot on everyone, you just send everyone an a ballot paper to the addresses. The irony here is on the red meat sector, HDB doesn't know where hardly any of their levy pairs actually live because the levy is paid at the abattoir. So they have very little contact as a result with the people who indirectly pay the levy so it's all a bit yeah bonkers and here's a final thought for you in holland the horticulturalists got so cross with their uh, levy body in 2015 that they actually abolished it 
There's food for thought. My name's Howard Warns. I'm Area Sales Manager for Massey Ferguson Harvesting. I've spent a lot of time with our balers and I know that each one is built to the highest standards, ensuring each bale produced is to the quality you'd expect. Engineered with years of experience, you won't find a better baler on the market today. For more information, visit the Massey Ferguson website or contact your local Massey Ferguson dealer. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. You are indeed listening to the Farmer's Weekly Podcast. Welcome along. If you would like to get in touch, you can email podcast at fwi.co.uk. That's podcast at fwi.co.uk. If you have any thoughts or ideas about the podcast, get on the email now. Right. Uh, It may have escaped your notice, but the combines are moving for many and they move further on. The oilseed rape harvest got underway this week with combines moving into crops across the south and east of the country. Andrew Hunt from Norfolk told us they had a strong start to the crop. It started off running sort of three, three, six, three and a half. The moisture is around 7.88%. Unfortunately, as time went on, yields were dropping down. We're now running around the sort of three-ton mark. And I think, uh, again, we've got 100 acres still to desiccate. And I think by the time we've harvested that bit as well, we're going to be more around the 2.8 mark, two and a half, something like that. Meanwhile, the winter barley harvest continues. We caught up with Berkshire grower Colin Rayner while he was working in his grain dryer. When we started on Monday, it takes about five minutes for straw to start coming out of the combine. And it looked good. It looked good the whole season. And I thought it's going to be my Cinderella crop. We're not doing two tonnes. Bushel's good. I've got 63.1, which I thought was quite good. Colin also started his oilseed rape harvest this week. We are lucky if we're doing a ton an acre. But that hasn't looked well. It looked beautiful until the first week of March. I forgot how wet the grape was until we went harvesting on Monday and we found these tank traps that we put in when we put nitrogen on the first week of March. Because up from that point, we couldn't travel on any of it. Normally, we put nitrogen on it on, by Valentine's Day, but we couldn't get on the ground until the 1st of March and we've left tank traps. Owen Clegg is the markets manager from United Oilseeds. The yields seem to be variable. Um, some people reporting low yields, some people reporting better than expected yields, but we're probably going to be below the five-year average, probably um, just over three tonnes per hectare as an average is what we've seen so far. I also asked him whether the recent fire at Erith would have big problems trying to move oilseed rape off farm this season. Well, at the moment, there's reasonable demand to Liverpool and uh, there's a programme to remove the old crop stocks to the continent. In theory, um, a lot of stores will have extra capacity because of a lower wheat harvest. And if the rapeseed crop is um, only about you know, 1 to 1.2 million tonnes as opposed to the normal 1.7 weather, well, 1.7 million tonnes last season, there should be um, available capacity to um, take the reduced crop. So, Phil, some pretty variable-looking results out there at the start of harvest, uh, certainly on the all-seed rape front. Yeah, that's very much the picture we've been getting and uh, ringing farmers ourselves as well. Um I guess that's not surprising given the season that we've had, um, obviously casting your mind back to the incredibly wet autumn, uh, a sort of mild wet winter, which uh, didn't kill many of the bugs. And then all the drought challenges in, in April and May. 
So yeah, we're seeing very patchy crops. And as they start to come off, that's that showing uh, in the combine and in the bin. As mentioned there, we're going to be importing oilseed rape, but also some word that because of currency, we might be exporting as well. With with the weak pound, then certainly that uh, is always helpful to our export competitiveness. And where there are opportunities, then I'm sure traders will be looking to, to grab them. And and with the fire at, uh, at Erith as well, uh, then clearly there'll be reduced crush capacity for, for the time being. However long that continues, we don't know. Uh, but traders will be looking for whatever outlet they can find. Hi, it's Jasmine from KWS. This year, to say thank you for all the hard work that farmers do, we're giving away some prizes. You could be the lucky winner of two tonnes of our new winter wheat candidate, KWS Cranium. To enter, visit our website, www.kws-uk.com. Good luck. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. Right, time for a look at this week's market. Um, Phil, the beef market edging ever slightly upwards? Yep. On the livestock side, we've seen some marginal improvements uh, with the all deadweight finished steers price up 2p a kilo at 361 pence and finished steers live weight also up 2p at 195 pence a kilo. Uh, the sheep trade's been a bit more mixed with the SQQ for lambs deadweight climbing 16p to 488 pence a kilo. Uh, but the live weight equivalent down 7p to 223. Uh, on the arable side, uh, feed wheat remains well supported by the weaker pound and prospects of tighter crops across Europe, uh, £158 a tonne X farm, uh, and there's a decent premium for milling wheat, uh, £24 over that. Feed barley, that's a bit of a discount, however, and falling at just £121 a tonne X farm, while oilseed rape at £322 a tonne is the same as it was last week. Also this week, the AHDB has released its latest planting figures for the arable sector. Susie Horn, Farmers Weekly Business Editor, joins me now. Susie, there are no big surprises here. Everybody knew that the wheat area was going to be down significantly. That's been confirmed at 25% down. We all knew also that winter barley was well down, but spring barley was up. The AHDB figures show a 34% drop in the winter barley area and a 52% increase in the spring barley area. Also, oilseed rate down 26%. While the trades had sort of factored all of that into prices and, and what it thought about the outlook, it, it does confirm the, the expectations and uh, we're going to have a job to shift a lot of barley as soon as possible. Also, Susie, the fire at Tilbury Grain Terminal, what impact is that likely to have on exports? I've had an update this morning, which is that actually exports and imports are continuing. Um, it's just the silo operation that's closed until at least the 31st of July. Um, and they're going to update you know, as soon as they can on that in the lead up to that date. Um, they've secured quite a lot of off-site storage so that they can still handle the grain that they're, that they're committed to do. On Wednesday this week, Chancellor Rishi Sunak made a further announcement on measures to help the economy recover from coronavirus, including a cut in VAT for the hospitality sector from 20% to 5%, which should help those farmers who have diversified into agritourism. Victoria Vivian is the CLA's vice president. It's going to 
boost the opportunity for an autumn season. We've been very worried uh, in the tourism industry that we might suffer from three winter syndrome. If you think largely uh, tourism businesses don't take any money at all from the end of August, September until the following March. In March, of course, we went straight into lockdown. So there's a lot of very cash-starved businesses. If they can create a situation which encourages people to go on holiday through September, October and November, that might mitigate that third winter issue that people are looking at. But I think it might also help us compete with European holidays because there are European countries, several European countries, and Greece is the only one that jumps to mind, that have much lower VAT rates for hospitality businesses, which means that a European holiday often seems a lot cheaper. Hi, I'm Philip Cosgrave from Yara. Now is not a bad time to take stock of what phosphate and potash have been applied to date on grass fields and reconciling these with what's on your nutrient management plan or the recommendations in the grassland section of RB209. If you need advice on nutrient management, ask a fax qualified advisor or contact your local fax qualified Yara area manager. Keeping to this theme, I'm delighted that the Chagas specialist on soil and plant nutrition, Mark Plunkett, will join me next Tuesday evening, the 14th at 8pm for Yara's next grassland webinar, where the discussion will focus on soil fertility and why it's important on grassland farms. To register for this webinar, just search Yara Agronomy Webinars or go to yara.co.uk. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now, autumn breeding sales are always very busy times for auction marts across the country. This year, though, not surprisingly, with the COVID-19 restrictions in place and social distancing in place, running sales is going to be a challenge, particularly the big sales for all those involved. Add to that the difference in regulation between the devolved nations, and it's a complicated picture. Chris Dodds represents auctioneers across England and Wales. The markets will be will be asking people only to come when they're selling or buying or, or looking to buy, trying to reduce the number of people in the market to as few as we possibly can. So, so the intention is that the sales will continue or the very largest majority of them will continue. North of the border, the two-metre social distancing rules still apply. Despite this challenge, markets are finding solutions to keep the sales moving. Neil Wilson is from the Institute of Auctioneers and Appraisers in Scotland. So they will have their live ring operating, and then in their second ring, they're going to have a you know a big screen in there so they can accommodate more buyers. And effectively, the the, the live sale next door will be beamed into the next ring with a, I suppose, a second auctioneer taking bids from there. And then they also have a sort of exhibition hall which they're going to do the same in there. So, you know, suddenly from having been able to get probably maybe. 40 to 45 buyers around one ring with two metre social distancing, suddenly we can, you know, that market's probably going to be able to get up to, you know, maybe over 200 buyers in. We're trying to come up with things to make it more helpful for the whole industry to make sure that we can generate the sales and, and generate the prices that people are looking for. New ways of doing business have developed in many places. Ted Ogden is the senior auctioneer at Skipton Mart in North Yorkshire. He told us that lots of his farmers are taking full advantage of the new technology that he has to offer them. The vendors, mainly this last uh, week, while social distance has dropped to one metre in England, they've had the ability to now come back to market, I would say 85% have chosen to carry on 
what we call the drop and go system where the vendor brings the stock to market, unloads it, passes as relevant paperwork and the vendor entry form to tell us about the stock that's being sold. Then they've gone home. They can log in via the CCM auctions website to the online streaming cameras. The vendors are going home knowing roughly what time the stock's going to be sold, having coffee time or lunch time or whatever, logging in, watching their, their stock being sold, and still feeling as if they're, they're part of that transaction that they would do if, if they were in the market. And the other stuff that we've, we've done, we've done timed auctions. So we've had a, a stock bull sale. We usually have spring stock bull sales in, in May, so we've had a timed auction for that, and a machinery sale last week. And next week we're selling working sheepdogs via that medium of timed auction. And for those who want to get around the ring, the team at Skipton have developed private ringside booths. Protecting the buyers and our own staff here at the auction mart was our primary concern. But we also needed to uh, increase uh, the amount of people that could get into a decent position to bid. So we've set up what we've uh, called a, a bidding booth, which is a little bit like a cubicle. It's, uh, it's a wood panel with some clear perspex, clear acetate that's been folded to fit the wooden panel. Uh, that, that comes above the head height. So people step into this uh, three-foot-wide booth. You can still see the people alongside you and see full view around you through the clear acetate. But it's uh, food-grade, so it's wipeable. And it, it uh, it's a bit like a screen when you go into a shop. You, uh, you can't get breathed on by the person next to you. Yeah, it's working quite well. It's a challenge keeping the sales going and keeping the number of people attending at a safe level. Chris Dodds appealed to all market users to work with the new systems. You might find that when a, a market was holding different categories of sheep on the same day, that they're now splitting those sales and trying to hold them on different days to reduce the throughput of people and make it more manageable. But my plea and request to everyone out there would be, please work with your auctioneers when they're trying to facilitate and put in place systems and traffic, as in people movements, that they need to work with us uh, in order to allow these sales to happen. So it sounds to me like the markets are doing a lot of uh, good things to try and keep things moving forward. There's been a huge effort, I think, by all the auction operators across the whole country to make this work, and and, and the results have been really fantastic. Trade doesn't seem to have decreased in any way, shape or form. Uh, One thing Ted told me about, which was brilliant, was using the Zoom conferencing uh, app. Um, They have a sheepdog sale uh, this week. Now, they're going to have a timed auction online for the actual dogs, but in terms of viewing the dogs, which normally people would see the dogs run and and then bid on them, uh, they're giving... uh, basically inviting a prospective buyers to a massive Zoom conference and then each of the dog's owners, uh, the vendors selling the dogs, uh, will take it in turns to sort of show on Zoom using probably the sort of app on their mobile phone to show the dog running out and doing its thing. Uh, and then they slowly go through them all and then the next day uh, they start the timed auction and then the dogs are sold. So uh, some really ingenious stuff going on. It's really fantastic to see. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really, really interesting. Um, it'll be great to see you know if that really catches on and whether it changes things for the long term the farmers weekly podcast so how do you cut your tractor fuel bill by nearly a quarter it seems the answer is hydrogen one aberdeenshire farmer has been doing this for a while now and according to academics at sac consulting he's been cutting his fuel bills by nearly a quarter 
David Barron has been working with SAC as a climate change focus farmer. The hydrogen electrolyzer, the size of a suitcase, is retrofitted to vehicles and it feeds hydrogen into the engine's air intake. David told us that it was very simple to fit. You find a place in your vehicle that is, is uh, suitable and it's very simple to fit and very simple to use. And if the thing does break down, the box, it just goes back to your usual diesel engine. There's no complications and you're never out of action. According to David, it makes a significant difference to the vehicle's performance. It increases the torque of the engine. I think it would be a bit of a claim it increases your horsepower, but it definitely increases your torque, but it feels like it's increased your horsepower because you're doing most jobs in a gear above. It's far more able to pull and do whatever you need to be doing. I've got it fitted on a Ford TS-115 and a Ford Ranger truck. So I've got it on two vehicles at the moment, but I would like it in three or four or five. Probably needs less servicing. The filters seem to be enough to look cleaner when you take them off. The emissions has been tested uh, independently by my local garage uh, before it's fitted and after it's fitted, and it cuts the emissions to nearly zero, which uh, he was amazed at. And at a recent open day on David's farm, a hydrogen cutting torch was demonstrated, fuelled by water. And the heat coming out of it was amazing. He, he was burning holes in my concrete for putting post holes in. He was cutting bits of metal, all from hydrogen. There's endless points possibilities for what hydrogen could be used for. The sky's the limit, and it's, it's from the power of water. It's amazing. It's in Scotland. We have plenty of. So there you go, Phil. Uh, will you be uh, perhaps thinking about converting your vehicle to hydrogen? Uh, well, given that I drive a, a VW <laughs> A petrol car, <laughs> uh, I think the opportunities for me are going to be somewhat limited. I, d- I don't know whether you can fit it to a car. It's possible. Uh, it's a really simple system, though, and, and effectively you put distilled water in, uh, it turns it, hydro- electrolyzes it, puts the hydrogen into the air intake and burns in the engine. One interesting thing David told me was that he'd bought a new JCB. Uh, he had it on his old JCB load all. He bought a new one from the dealership. They were going to put it on it. But then they decided they wouldn't... Well, I think he's still in negotiation, so it may be that he has to keep it off during the warranty period and then they fit it. But look, you'd think that manufacturers might start to think about putting this stuff on as standard kit to cut people's uh, diesel consumption. And it really seems to be cleaning up the emissions as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if it's uh, good for the bank account and it's uh, good for the climate, then it's clearly a win-win. And that cost-wise, it's come down quite a lot in the last few years. They're looking at about £1,000 an installation uh, if you have a couple of them done. So time will tell uh, whether it catches on or indeed where else hydrogen pops up on the farm. Well, that's it for this week's Farmers Weekly podcast. Coming up next week, we'll be hearing about DEFRA's new animal health and welfare pathway. And we'll be previewing British Farm Safety Week. And don't forget, you can hear this podcast in all the usual podcast places on Google, on Spotify and on Apple. And please don't forget, let's cheekily ask you, give us a five-star rating. You can also hear us on fwi.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Phil Clark. And I'm Hugh Broom. Until next week, goodbye.